What is up, everybody? I am Jason Trost. I am joined today by the co-founder and CEO of Profit, Dean Sisson. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Dean. Let's get into exchanges, a topic I am very passionate about. And thanks for joining us. Let's do it. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right, let's do it. Why don't you, I like to start when I'm talking to other entrepreneurs, like uh, start with the founding story, because I think that sets up a lot of, you know, why you are where you are today and what you're trying to accomplish with profit. Absolutely. Um, it dates back to when I was a student at university. Um, I was definitely, I'll call it a, a sports betting enthusiast, as I like to say. And initially, uh, what got me thinking about the idea of, of trading in and out of positions, I'll say, is uh, my buddy and I, who is now my co-founder, Jake, we placed a bet on the Nashville Predators to win the Stanley Cup 30 to 1. Uh, they were the eighth seed. We were living in Nashville at the time, and they swept the Blackhawks in the first round. And immediately their value jumped to about five to one to win it all because they look great. So we said to ourselves, wait a second. Our bet just went up six times in value. We can't do anything with, with it. That was the inception of, of profit initially. So what we initially set out to do was be a, a digital secondary marketplace for sports bets where you can buy and sell percentages of bets. Um, it was a half-baked idea. It never really went anywhere. Then we graduated. We were at our desk jobs and we started thinking about it. We said, you know, uh, Jake pings me. I believe it was on Facebook Messenger, and he said, hey, I'm learning about options at my job right now, and we totally have to do this idea. It just makes too much sense. I said, I looked into it. There's a company already doing it. There's a lot of legal barriers to entry. Um, we had, from there, ended up uh, calling a couple of attorneys in the U.S. After these conversations, uh, they, as well as us, were thinking about, well, what if we didn't do this in the U.S., but what if we did this in the U.K.? Barriers to entry are a lot lower. Uh, licensing costs are affordable for, for two kids who are, who are just coming out of college. Um, it was doable. So we consulted some attorneys out there in the UK. We started going through that process, started paying some legal bills with our salaries. Um, we eventually filed for an application, uh, got our license, raised some money, moved out there. Uh, and then while we were out there, we ran into a couple of exchanges, Smarkets, Betfair, BetDAC, Matchbook, and we realized, holy moly, we are doing this all wrong. Uh, we should be operating more like this as opposed to the secondary marketplace for sports bets. People want three things is what we learned. They want better prices, they want more action, and they want familiarity with a splash of differentiation. Um, so that led us to coming back to the US. Uh, we raised money to get a market access agreement market access agreement out here in New Jersey. We partnered with Caesars. And then eventually we went through the process with the DG. We launched our exchange. We pivoted a bit, I'll say, to more of a Betfair market style approach as opposed to uh, a more of a secondary marketplace approach. And um, now we've been live six, seven months in the US. And that's the uh, story of my, the last five years of my life in three minutes. So what are you trying to do with profit? Like, what is, what is your, um, what are you trying to stand for that other companies aren't doing? It's pro-consumer at the end of the day. It's something I've been preaching for a while. It's, it's, it's going to sound corny, but it's sports betting freedom, right? At the end of the day, when you are betting on a sports book, 
they're controlling the price. They are controlling how much action you can get down. If you are decent at betting, they can tag you in, in this sport and that sport and say, you can get this much action down in this sport, this much action down at, that sport, at this sport in this market. Um, you're not playing in a fair environment, right? Like that you are designed to lose. Whereas in, on an exchange, you have more freedom. It's more pro-consumer. That is what we stand for. Um, at the end of the day, on an exchange, you get better prices. You can request your own price. You can get as much action down as you want. So as long as there are counterparties to match it. Um, and it's just a bit of a different experience in a, in a landscape where everyone right now is the same. So it's really interesting that you tried to start in the UK first and then pivot to New Jersey. If you had called me a couple of years ago, I think I would have told you to stick it out in the UK. Um, you mentioned that you think you ran up against the wall of competition. Um, was, was that the only reason that you wanted to pivot out of the UK market and into the US? Because you thought that there was with the four exchanges, there's, there's, it's too crowded? Or were there other reasons that uh, you pivoted to New Jersey? Because I do think all things being equal, launching an exchange in the UK market is a lot easier than the US market. It was part of the reason. Right. Com competition was part of the reason, but being an American, I had a lot more connections in the U S than I did in the UK. It would take me a while to build that out. Right. So, uh, you come to you know, the, the every, uh, the every crux of every startup is raising money. Right. And it, it was a lot easier for us to raise money in the U S launching a U.S. product than launching a UK product in the UK. I'm sure you might've found that as well, come, being an American coming over to the UK, right? Um, that, that was a big one. Uh, number two, the opportunity was bigger in the US. I should say number one, the opportunity was bigger in the US. No one was out there. Uh, we learned that the exchanges didn't want to come to the US for a few reasons. It is a market that is fragmented naturally state by state with uh, each state having different barriers to entry, each state having different regulatory processes. However, the opportunity was too big to ignore, being that no one was there yet. Um, so for those two reasons, in addition to the competition in the UK, that's the reason why we moved back. Got it. And so talk to me about raising money. How much did you raise? Who did you raise it from? Raising money is, is, uh, is a grind, as you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've done a fair amount. Our, our biggest investor is a public company out in Japan. Uh, they came into our seed round in May, 2021, um, along with a few other smaller VCs, high net worth individuals. Um, we've done about 10 to 15 to date. We've, uh, most recently raised about a year ago. And, uh, the, this, uh, this public company out in Japan, they're supporting us. They are moving into sports betting as well. So it's a bit of a strategic play for them. Okay, so you raised 10 to 15. Uh, you decided to launch in New Jersey. So when, when did you guys go live and, and how's it going so far? We launched August 15th, uh, 2022. It's been going well. So something the approach that we took was let's get to market and then figure out the product advancements that we need to make. So we went out with a not a bear market, but it was a, not a bear product, but more of an MVP product, I'll call it. Um, and since then we've been figuring out where the pain points have been in our product and, and adapting to our customer behavior. Right. Um, so the last six months have been 
who is our core user, who is our core target market, and then let's build everything towards these guys and then start to branch out. Um, and it's been a grind, but we've been slowly but surely accumulating more customers. Our attention is phenomenal. Um, so that part of the business is going pretty well. I'm, I'm excited about that. And are there any numbers you can share or do you want to keep those confidential? I can share some. Uh, I can cherry pick the ones that I want to share, right? <laughs> so, cherry pick, cherry pick away. So our average weekly retention rate is 86%, which is, is really good. 35% um, of our users request bets. So not just accepting, but requesting. Um, our average volume per user has been... Requ by request bet, you mean they post an order? Post, is that the, order, the yeah. way you describe it? Yeah, that's the way okay. you describe it. Um, the average volume per user has been about 10 grand a month. Um, so all things considered, the initial user traction is there. We've had about 5,000 people sign up to the site. So um, those are the numbers I can share. All right, good stuff. I remember in the early days of Smarkets, uh, I would get an email every time somebody signed up and I would go, you know, excitedly squirrel the internet and see who, <laughs> who it was that signed up. Yeah. And, you know, in the early days, it's uh, it's really exciting as to watch those signups come in. So I'm sure you you hear it a lot. Um, I see it a lot in the press that you guys are compared to sport trade because you guys are similar size, similar kind of you know, obviously the same market in New Jersey. You guys are the first exchanges to launch in the in the United States. What would you say? How would you compare yourself to Sport Trade? What do you do better? What do they do better? Um, how do you guys stack up against you, each other? Yeah, it's a it's a fair question. So, first of all, I, I want to say I, I respect Sport Trade a ton. What they have accomplished and what they have done is a tremendous feat. Um, they've they were earlier than us to announce. Uh, their first market access, access agreement. So they um, they got into the exchange space and they started building uh, the network out and, and gambling Twitter and beyond a little earlier than us. But the way they take their approach versus the way we take our approach, the best way to describe it is it's more fintech versus sports betting. At the end of the day, if you, if you go on sport trade, it feels like Robin Hood. Uh, you're trading uh, on contract values or probabilities between zero and a hundred on our side, it's more sports book feel with exchange pricing and advantages. Um, one of the key differences between us and them is the way their settlement engine works. So they settle per my, you know, uh, market research at zero or a hundred. So your bet can either win or it can lose. There's no, push there's no 50 um which is which is probably by design for them right because they're they're attracting more day traders and not again it's fintech it's not sports betting is, is the way i see it um whereas with us you can push so you're going to see more textbook lines like minus three minus seven on a sporting event whereas on sport trade you won't see that because they're encouraging more uh in-game trading behavior so um i would say that's the biggest difference again it's, it's fintech for sports betting but Again, I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. Um, so, you, so you're basically saying they're more. You're more like the, the your target audience, or at least the essence of your company is more towards the casual better, and they're more towards the advanced better. Is that a fair characterization? I wouldn't say casual towards advanced. I would actually say ours is more towards the sports better. The I, I like to call our target market the price sensitive sports betters. 
the guys who are living okay. the guys who are living on odd screens, the guys who understand that minus one hundred two is better than minus one ten, the guys who uh, can dabble on our site and start playing around with what I call requesting prices. Whereas with them, they target more day traders and and they would prefer to turn them into sports betters. Um, that Got is it. Their vision is my understanding. And how would you stack yourself up against the, the top tier sports books? Like, what do you provide that they don't? The exchange experience, right? Uh, FanDuel, DraftKings. We will never be able to beat them. Number one, we'll never be able to spend as much as them. Number two, we'll never be able to beat them on parlays. And <laughs> that is so defeatist. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never be able to beat them on parlays and teasers. It's just not where. We why not beat them on parlays and teasers? Why why let them win on parlays and teasers? That's I guess the, the immediate future. It's not a, it's not where we live. Okay, I'm curious yeah. to get your thoughts on that because I know you started as an exchange, and then moved into SBK with better parlays and teasers, right? But for the immediate future, that's yeah. not where we're going to compete. Uh, where we're going to compete is on straight bets. We're moving into player props. We dabbled with that over the Super Bowl. We saw 40% of Super Bowl volume come in um, on player props. And then where we're going to beat them again is with this new functionality of requesting prices. You're going to hear me say it a ton, but people like to, from what we've seen, again, 35% of our customer base, we've got a lot of unmatched volume week to week sit and request prices on events that they want to bet on. Um, and then you can see as the game starts to come closer to, to kick off or tip, people are adjusting their prices. They're accepting ones that are available. They enjoy the um, sports betting trading experience. So if a, if a young entrepreneur came to me or an old entrepreneur and they wanted to start an exchange um, and they asked me, how would you do it? Um, one of the things that would, would uh, go to the top of my mind is the tech stack that you have to build is incredibly, well, at least from my understanding of, from doing it myself, uh, it's incredibly complex. Like how did you guys build your tech stack? Did you do it in-house? Did you outsource it? Yes, uh, it's all in-house and you're right. It is it's a bit above my head, quite honestly. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly difficult. So you have to build it to meet the United States needs right? Uh, not only the exchange needs, but also the United States needs. So like I was talking about earlier, the US market, it's fragmented state by state. So uh, because of the Wire Act, every liquidity pool has to reside within every state. So you have to have ring fence liquidity, you cannot have people in New York trading against people in New Jersey, which presents an interesting challenge, right? It, not only does your exchange have to be scalable, but it has to be replicable, if you want to move into multiple states. Um, which was definitely the biggest challenge on our side. Additionally, you have uh, a lot of regulatory challenges so that aren't presented in, in from my experience in the UK. It's, it's a little more strict in the US. So you have to build your backend and your databases within the confines of this regulation. And that also presents a unique challenge. And then finally, I mean, you're basically building a mini New York Stock Exchange for sports betting. So with all of that, uh said it took us a, a while to build our product and like like you just said uh rightfully so 
So can so I, I I take it that you're not um, technical, but can you talk a little bit about like uh, the challenges of that? Did you hire engineers specifically to do that? Um, how many people are working on that? I'm I'm really curious how you guys tackled that problem because to me, from my from where I'm sitting, that's one of the most complicated parts of starting an exchange. Yeah. So we've had our CTO on since day one. Um, he is very sharp dude from Australia, lives in uh, Ho Chi Minh out in Vietnam. He has a lot of experience building companies and scaling companies out in Asia. So he has taken the reins of building the team underneath him out in Ho Chi Minh. We have 38 uh, uh, full-time engineers out there. So him and his team have taken the charge. Now we weren't 38 engineers right off the bat, right? We were slowly hiring and bringing people in as we realized we have more and more challenges to overcome, but he was the one who architected it. We've had a couple of, of advisors help us out with exchange experience. Um, and then they built the product underneath him. They is in the engineer. That's super, that's super interesting to build it in Vietnam. Um, I have never, uh, I've never attempted uh, an offshore model. Um, all of our developers have always been in London actually. And sometimes we had some, or in a few cases we had engineers in Los Angeles, but, um, throughout the last 15 years, I would say 99% of the engineering has been done in London. What is that like for you as a, as a founder CEO? Do you go to Vietnam? Like, do you have to wake up in the middle of the night? Like what, what, what's the reality of that? You know, now that I have a team underneath me, uh, the team underneath me more so deals with the late nights, uh, on the product and engineering side, but uh, in the early days, yes, I, I was doing this every night. I'd basically be working like 18 hour days, right? And you would have your US hours and then you'd have your product and engineering hours um, working with the team out there. It's a 12 hour time difference on average. So um, that was challenging. And then, yes, we have visited them out there. Um, it's not just, you know, a, a random dev shop. They are part of the team. Uh, we like to put faces to names and build relationships with them. Uh, we've been working with some of them for three plus years. So we visited them last year. Uh, they showed us around. We did some, some team building exercises, got some legitimate fun bond me's. It was, uh, it was a great time. <laughs> cool. And so, um, I'm curious also from an offshoring model, you know, like from time to time, things are going to fuck up. Um, and the nice thing about having the engineers next to everybody else is, you know, when things, when shit hits the fan, you can walk three feet down and go talk to them at their desk. What do you do when it's Super Bowl and the thing crashes at, you know, what happens when you crash during a big event? So I guess I forgot to mention, we have two, two very important guys in the U.S. Uh, who sit right underneath our CTO. So that is our solution to uh, if something happens during the Super Bowl or if, half it, or if something happens during the day or we need a quick fix. Uh, they are the ones to, to help us out. Got it. So how big is the company? Uh, you mentioned you have 30 engineers in Vietnam. How big, how big, what's the makeup of the company in total? We've got 17 stateside and then 38 out in Vietnam. Um, everyone except those two that I mentioned are not technical in the U S so 15, um, product marketing, uh, analytics, uh, operations, CX, risk and fraud. There's a lot of compliance. There's a lot, there's a lot of surface area you need to cover as a sports betting company is what I slowly began to realize. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll be continually reminded of that the next five years. 
So, um, so the, the, I'm curious also from, um, you started, um, you know, I started markets right after the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and in hindsight, it ended up being a very good era to, to found companies. And now I think founders like the last 10 years, it's becoming increasingly clear. We're very frothy, uh, easy to fund the era of cheap capital. It's, there's tons of cheap capital last 10 years. And so, how are you managing that as a founder CEO now that the, I, I assume funding is going to be harder for you. Um, you're in that kind of, I have to prove the technology in the business stage of the business. Like, how are you managing that? It's difficult, man. Um, I feel like, you know, you, you picked a, to, to start a company right after the financial crisis. So I feel like uh, I'm preaching the choir a little bit, but we went through COVID uh, and now we're going through as a, we were five months, we were live out in the UK and then boom, sports got shut off. The, the faucet was done. I was like, oh my God, I don't know what the hell we're going to do. Uh, but we, we figured that out, obviously. And then now we're in the worst market that that I've ever seen in, in five years as a, as a founder. I don't know if it's the worst market you've ever seen. I'm curious, but the, the mantra of growth at all costs is gone, right? You're not, it's not let's go get as many customers as possible and then go raise money off the back of that and then do it again and again and again. It's a complete shift into how do we make this company profitable as quickly as possible? How do we operate it as lean as we can uh, in order to get to that profitability mark? How do we look at our customer base and understand how to best spend at getting those customers? How do we get the customers who are retained at 95% a week and not just fill them with customers who get retained at 60% a week? It is a completely different calculation that, that you have to do as a founder. And then as you work towards your path to profitability, you're likely, I mean, look at all these valuations that are coming down. You're, you're, you're not even going to be rewarded for it, right? You have to go out and, and raise money again at a valuation that's probably 40% lower that, than you could have gotten a year ago. Um, and you probably have to raise less capital uh, at that valuation. So it's all it's been completely turned on its head, and, and that's how we think. That's how I think about it as a founder. Is how the best way I think about it is how do I run this like a pea shop almost without being, uh, I guess, too rigorous, right? How do we make sure that we are getting the right customers? How do we make sure that we are putting our, ourselves on that path to profitability? It is, it's difficult. How are you doing it? <laughs> Uh, we've had to make some tough decisions, right? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think you said this, uh, this might be out or not, but, uh, we made some mistakes. We as in, uh, my founder and I, we over-prepared for growth to start, which would have been okay if the environment were the same as it was a year and a half ago. Right. But now it's not. Um, so there were roles that we had at our company that we had to unfortunately let go of because, I couldn't justify a case that we we needed them. Um, and it's it's a very tough decision that that I have to make as a founder. Additionally, you can't spend as much on marketing as you want to, right? You, you, it's not, like I said earlier, it's not just getting in these customers that are, uh, that have low LTVs and, and are gonna take money to retain. You want to target the people who are going to stick to your products. You understand the competitive advantages that you are uh, applying to the space. And what that turns into is a much lower marketing spend and a much more meticulous spend. Um, I've also learned that 
the product needs to come a bit further of a ways before you start spending aggressively, right? So we have a couple features that we haven't rolled out yet. Our, our smart wallet, uh, live betting, we are rolling out deep liquidity in the next couple of weeks. So for a lot of these reasons, customers churn, but how can we get the customers who are going to stay regardless of these features? And then how, how do we scale that spend as those features come in? Um, and what channels do we target? So these are all the decisions that I have to make, all the thoughts that go through my mind, um, ranging from what the staff looks like to what the spend looks like to what our top line looks like. So our, our our business model is we have a we make money on trading risk. So we take principal risk when we're placing bets, and we also have a commission based model. What's your revenue model at profit? Uh, right now, it's pure commission. Okay, and how are you handling the liquidity side of the equation? So we have liquidity providers, albeit right now a small one. Um, coming soon, like I. Like I just mentioned, we'll have larger liquidity providers who can come in and, and place 10 to 20K aside across a much larger uh, variety of events covering more surface area. So that's what it looks like right now on the on the liquidity side. So can you, uh, are you, are you open to mentioning their names or are they uh, confidential? Um. I don't think they would be happy if I mentioned their names. Okay. And I don't want right. uh, I don't want them to know who they're trading against because that's if it, I'm sure you felt the same way. Uh, market market <laughs> yeah. makers, all they want to know is who they're trading against. Um, and one of our our rules is no one knows who they're trading against. All right. So you mentioned when we were prepping for the call, you mentioned you wanted to uh, ask me a few questions. So I'll, I'll pass the mic over to you. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm curious. So you went through, I guess you were the OG American moving to the UK, building the exchange uh, shortly after the financial crisis. I guess I'll start with a very generic question. Um, how did you sell that story being that uh, Betfair was already in the market? You had Desmond Dermott's company, BetTac already in the market. Matchbook was already in the market. How, how did you sell that? Uh, to employees, investors, the press, I mean, who, which audience? I guess I'll start with investors and then move into employees. Uh, investment. I mean, I really, I started Smarkus when I was 26 and was pretty naive, um, which is both a blessing and a curse. But generally speaking, when you start a business, I think naivete is one of your biggest assets. So, you know, I would talk to literally anybody that I could. I talked to lots of sort of VCs. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, I ended up striking out with almost every VC in London um, for years and years and years. Uh, and so I didn't get anywhere with that. And I ended up doing the uh, the friends and family rounds. So early days, I did two friends and family rounds. Um, I wrote a business plan that I still like to, it's funny to kind of go back and look at what I wrote. But the nice thing about it, even though it was, it was also naive and overly optimistic as, as business plans often are, it was very, the vision of markets hasn't changed. And I would say the, the North star for us is what we are trying to do. In my opinion, doesn't really exist in the market of good technology, good user experience and very low margin for the end user. And so I would say if you were to ask me to separate markets from every other sports book or every other exchange, I would say we stand for good technology and amazing prices for the end user. And, and, and I still think that that 
that uh, that hypothesis has not been properly executed by us or by nor by any other uh, provider. So I still think there's a huge lane to kind of be the uh, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but that tech company that kind of uh, does betting properly. That's what we're trying to do, and that's the vision I was selling when I when I first started. And I think it resonated with a few people, not many people, but a few people uh, got excited about that. I like what you said earlier. Um, forgot when I heard it, but you said people want a sports book experience with exchange prices. And I thought that's, that's to a T what the sports betting market wants. Um, so did you raise that family and friends around and then launch your product and then go out and raise another round off some traction? Like how, how was the evolution of those markets? As I said, I was super naive and both my co-founder and I were technical and I thought him and I would just bang out the first version and I completely underestimated, which it sounds like maybe you did a little bit too, of all the nuts and bolts that are required to to build an operating sports book or exchange. Uh, I think it took us two years to have a like a working demo and and I think it took us three years to get live. Um, so it took a long time before we got live. You know, like in the last 10 years, it was really important to have a demo to raise money. But when we were raising money in 2008-ish, um, you didn't have to have a demo, working demo to raise money, um, especially with friends and family, which are going more off the story and trusting you as a person to kind of deliver against that vision. So um, the first version, uh, the first round of funding uh, I forget the exact number. It was like a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. The second round of funding was a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So we raised almost no money um, uh, those first few years. We raised almost no money. So we had to big borrow and steal basically to kind of get things off the ground. And I want to say we launched with like five or six employees, something like that. Um, the, basically, like the the definition of MVP, you know, emphasis on the M. Uh, we really, uh, we really scraped it uh, to get live, and I, and I think it was a couple of years. I'm I'm trying to remember when my our first institutional funding was, but I want to say it was three or four years after we launched before we got institutional funding. Okay, so you were you were grinding it out for a bit. What we 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 grinded a lot, ground <laughs> grinded. We we uh, we did everything. I can totally appreciate that. Um, I'm curious if there was any sort of, cause I'm going through this right now and I think we've got it, but if there's any sort of inflection point in either customer behavior or as you're in your product as a whole, where you said, where a light went off and you said, okay, this is what we have to focus on. This is what every single unit of our company is working towards. It is because I learned this at this inflection point. Yeah, I, I would say we probably had five or six of those in the last 15 years. Um, and I would say almost all of them, at least off the top of my head, were by accident. Uh, so we would discover some inflection point by accident. So uh, one example, early doors is uh, early days, is that um, we did a tie-in with um, a political blogger called Guy Fox, who is who's on the conservative end of the spectrum, but we did a lot of stuff around the 2010 um, election, and we got a lot of notoriety, not necessarily betting volume, but we got a lot of people paying attention to us with that. That was one of the inflection points. Another inflection point was we discovered a market called Match Betters in the UK, which I didn't even know existed when we first launched, and, and that ended up being incredibly huge for us. 
um, naively when we launched, we didn't have horse racing a, because, you know, I wasn't into horse racing at all. And B, um, there's some esoteric, uh, attributes of, of offering horse racing, like reduction factors and things like that. And so eventually we decided, ah, let's add horse racing. And our, and once we added horse racing, our volume like doubled overnight, you know, and I think it was like two or three years after we launched and we had horse racing. It's one of those things that like, why didn't we add horse racing three years ago? So like every couple of years, we will, we'll find one of these things. I'm like, why didn't we do that years ago? Like multiples, for example, or parlays in the U S uh, language. Um, we added multiples and we just made so much money from multiples. And it's like, why didn't we do this 10 years ago? So, um, I would say we, we discovered a lot of those inflection points by accident. And, uh, but we always had this attitude of like, let's experiment and, and keep pushing. Something that, that I brought up earlier, parlays, multiples. Um, when did you launch those? And I, I guess like, how did you, how did you balance the exchange experience with, because it's obviously difficult to, you know, let's, let's walk through the process. If I want to bet on uh, a three team parlay and you're using the exchange experience, someone would have to take the other side, right? So you probably need either a liquidity provider or yourself to house that other side of the parlay. And then ultimately, why is your parlay experience better than a sports give less margin on that parlay or that multiple, right? So I'm curious, like how you went about that, that thought process. Yeah. So it's, 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 uh, it, it could be a, an hour long conversation yeah. just to talk about liquidity provisioning easily. Um, when I first founded Smarkets, I had zero interest in taking any principal risk or any liquidity provisioning. And long story short, we ended up be getting into that space because, um, uh, at a necessity, uh, all these people that, you know, some of these people that you don't want to mention, you know, I went around to a lot of these people and tried to get them to market maker on our platform, but we were so small that they didn't want to spend the time to, you know, everybody has, everybody has competing priorities and we are always too small to make it worth it for them to, uh, invest in markets. And so at a necessity, we ended up doing it ourselves. And out of necessity, we needed to get better and better because like you, we were getting squeezed on the revenue and cost side and, you know, if you're losing money on market making as well as the running the business, obviously it can compound the uh, the fiscal uh, the fiscal risk of the business. And so, out of necessity, we had to make our market maker better, better, better. And so that's why we we ended up falling into market making completely by accident. And now I think we're probably one of the world's largest market makers, if not the world's largest market maker. Um, you know, we trade hundreds of millions of pounds of sports a month. And, um, you know, it was completely by accident. Um, now to the multiples question, the nice bit about us having our own liquidity provisioning is that it was fairly easy for us to just roll it out to a multiples product and take the counterparty risk. We thought long and hard about making it an exchange product. Uh, but the reason multiples are incredibly tricky because, you need to introduce some kind of re request for quote process um, because it, it wouldn't make any sense to kind of spin up all the markets in advance because there's just an infinite combination of multiples markets. And so I couldn't find an elegant way to do it in an exchange context. Um, early days before we built our own multiples service, 
we had a mechanism that um, we would spin up popular multiples and then let that be exchange traded. Um, and we also had a, another product that would uh, basically spin up the price and we would take the other side of the price. So we, we used multiples more like a, a sports book than, a, than an exchange, but it would be cool to trade them more. It'd be cool to trade them on an exchange basis, but it's very difficult from... Um, there's this concept called search costs in computer science, which is basically the energy it takes for buyers and sellers to match each other. And the problem with having multiples being exchange traded product is the search costs are incredibly high trying to match buyers and sellers. Is that how uh, SBK came about? Was it off the back of multiples or was there something else? No, no, no. SBK, no, we built multiples actually for SBK in the first instance because, you know, a normal sports book required to have, was required to have multiples. So we were like, oh, let's add it. Um, the, uh, the reason SBK came about is Betfair for years, and if you go back and look at their old advertising, always tried to convince the normal better to use the exchange. So most recently they had Clive Owen ads um, trying to say like, this is exchange and everything. And over the years, Betfair and BetDAC had different interfaces, different uh, education components to try to get the sort of the William Hill Patty power better to use the exchange. And it never, ever worked. And my hypothesis was that the interface wasn't right for it. Um, and Betfair, BetDAC, tried to find sort of like a middle ground. So I believe BetDAC, I think it was BetDAC, but BetDAC had like a back-only interface and they tried a whole bunch of different things and none of them ever worked. And then if you look at the market share, at least in the UK basis, the uh, the sportsbook market is around 10 times bigger than the exchange market, like for like. And so I thought that using the experience of the other exchanges and looking at how much bigger the sports book market is, why don't we not try to dumb down the exchange and just deliver a sports book experience with exchange pricing? And that's what led to SBK. The other, the other reason I really wanted to do SBK is to give us freedom to have a more fun brand. You know, Smarkets was always intentionally, it's a little bit in the name, designed to be a serious kind of upmarket, more sophisticated punter brand where SBK, by creating a second brand, even though it creates a lot of problems, uh, getting a brand off the ground and and promoting that brand, it gives you a lot more flexibility to have more fun or change the the emotion or direction of that brand. Where um, whereas if you had Smarkets Light and Smarkets Pro, it gives you less freedom to to mess with the brand. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, my immediate question from that is: This is where my mind goes uh, with Smarkets and SBK. Are those separate liquidity pools or? Am I finding the same prices on straight bets uh, on SBK as I would on Smarkets, or is Smarkets the odds provider essentially of SBK? How, do, how does that all work? It works slightly different in the U.S. for regulatory reasons, but in the U.K., the 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 price the pool liquidity pool is the same between Smarkets and SBK. So we did that very intentionally. That SBK is built on top of the exchange, so that as SBK gets better, the exchange gets better, and as the exchange gets better, SBK gets better. Super interesting. Um, what is the, my final question, SBK, what's the average margin? I guess it's a, it's a hard way to think about it, but I'll ask it anyway. What's the average margin on a multiple on SBK? Uh, or I guess what's the average margin you're gaining on a multiple on SBK versus your typical sports book? Do you guys think about it that way? 
Yeah, we do. I think our margin, I was looking at this a little bit this morning and it changes depending on who's winning and losing and everything. But I think our average margin on a multiple is 10 to 15% where the industry is closer, I would say 20 to 30%, yeah. something like that. Huh. And I wish our margins, like to me, I think our 10 to 15% is probably too high and I would like to bring that down even more. Love that. Uh, but it's a it's a trade off. It's a trade off between you know being, bringing in revenue to the business versus uh, philosophically trying to have a uh, a tighter price for the customer. Our goal is to have the best or equal the best price across the board, and we don't always do that. But I think we come pretty close to that. Are you guys still uh, showing which prices are better than Bet three six five on? Yes, I wish we did a better job of that because it's actually hard to do a comparison with Bet365 because they're, you know, it's not easy to get access to their data. But uh, we do try to do that comparison across the board and to to show um, to show how much better we are. Um, I feel like I can ask you a zillion more questions. I don't know if you want to flip it back over to me. No, I, any, no, this is this is cool. Anything else? You, any any last questions? I guess U.S. plans. Um, I know you're in Colorado. Are you live in Indiana now? Um, We're live in Colorado, Indiana. Just for the sportsbook product, you know. In hindsight, uh, you know this might not be fun for you. Well, it doesn't really matter because I didn't do it. But in hindsight, I wish I had launched the exchange. I think in the U.S. Hmm. rather than the sportsbook, just because there's more natural. Um, what shall I call it? Like specialness or uniqueness or novelty with the exchange. Um, but the decision, I, I I thought that if we're going to lead with one, I wanted to go after the biggest, the bigger market share of this of SBK, which is why we did that. Um, we've done very very little marketing in the U.S. Um, I think I underestimated how much our product had to be customized for the American market. Uh, that was a surprise. What wasn't a surprise was how expensive it would be, uh, or is rather. Um, and so we have basically been sitting out on the sidelines um, while we improve our product and, and push our product in the UK. So 90x percent of our business is still in the UK right now. Got it. Okay. Interesting. I guess uh, I can relate to that when it comes to building up your product a bit before moving hard. State by state, the yeah. US. It's an expensive market to navigate. Yeah, I'm really glad. You know, we raised money in May of 2021, and and when I first raised the money, I was thinking, you know, let's go sign up six, seven, eight more states. But I'm really glad I didn't do that yeah. uh, because you know the market access is getting so cheap now, and uh, and uh, it's the market access when we signed up for it was incredibly expensive and. And it still is incredibly expensive for us. So I'm I'm really glad we kind of didn't sign up more states when when I initially wanted to. Agreed. I was I was thinking the same thing. And a year ago, I would have been thinking, "Holy cow, we need to move into more states and more states." And my conversations would be the same way with investors. It's when you're moving into you're only going to do this in New Jersey. When you're moving into your next state, and I would be like, well, "Let's slow down." Uh, but now it's like, "Why are you even considering moving into another state? Don't you want to nail New Jersey first? And I and I'm like, "Whoa." Yes, that's exactly what um, but yeah. it's it's crazy how the market has just completely flipped on its head. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, before I let you go, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> be when I grow up. Uh, well, my dream has always been this is actually a fun little story. Uh, 
if my co-founder is listening to this, he's going to be shaking his head. He knows exactly what's coming. Uh, I wanted to be a golf pro, teaching pro, not a not a professional golfer. Um, I taught at the first tee when I was 15, 16. Um, I wanted to move into a, a college teaching program, but my parents said, you're too smart for that. Don't do that. Like, we're not, this isn't, you're never going to make it. We're not supporting you. I'm like, holy cow. Okay. Um, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do that. Uh, but that is my dream, uh, to be a teaching pro. Um, but somehow awesome. I ended up as a sports betting exchange CEO. So that sounds, uh, that sounds doable. <laughs> it's not like a fly to Mars kind of dream. You can go be a golf pro. Uh, yeah, I'd, I definitely have to shake off a lot of rust. I mean, I, I definitely still play, but by no means can I go out and shoot like what I need to shoot to, to pass the, uh, the teaching protest against a bunch of players who have been playing a lot more than I have and have been in a program for four years. Um, but yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Dean, for joining us. I wish you the best of luck in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I really want to congratulate you on getting live and getting to this point. It's it's really hard work, uh, as a lot of founders will know, uh, just getting something off the ground. And as well, this industry needs innovation. There's so many sleepy dinosaurs in this industry, and it's really nice to see young, innovative uh, startups entering the space. So I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. And totally agree on that last sentiment. All right. Thanks very much. Cheers. See ya.